0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And hello, hello, hello. Good evening. Before we begin, I want to welcome a new affiliate to the program. Actually, the affiliate about to be mentioned will be picking up the show starting July the 8th. So a big how-do and welcome to KLVT AM 1230 Lubbock, Texas, K L V T A M twelve thirty, Lubbock, Texas, best in the West. So delighted to have them aboard, and uh, I believe uh, we'll add that to the growing list of affiliates. That's number sixteen, and uh, just keep them coming, keep them coming. You know, so many different ways to listen to this program. Of course, you can you in the in the Greater Toronto area, all the way down to the Carolinas, but you can also listen on podcast, and I get. So many emails from uh, people listening on, uh, to the podcast all over the world. And I wanted to shout out to uh, Adam Ashburn, who's listening uh, in Dickens Heath in the United Kingdom. Hi, Richard. Just wanted to say I'm a massive fan and love your podcasts. I leave my iTunes on constantly so that I could get the latest show update here in the UK as soon as physically possible. When for whatever reason it doesn't show up, I'm absolutely devastated. Fortunately, this has only happened twice, but it still hurts. Anyway, thanks uh, for the show and all the good stuff you do. A mention on your show would be truly amazing. Regards, Adam Ashburn, Dickens Heath. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your support and for listening. And uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, there are a number of ways. You can go to iTunes, and uh, it's it's everywhere, folks. All right. Uh I was in Brantford recently celebrating Mom Serrett's 88th birthday. My mother is a force of nature. She just, uh, I mean, I hope, I can only pray that I'm in half as good a shape as as she is uh, when I'm her age. Very inspiring. So uh, happy birthday again, Mom. And I had the boys there, and they were delighted because they have their brand new tent. They they just got it a couple of months ago for their sixth birthday, and it's a five-man tent, and they're very excited. So we camped out in Grandma's backyard in Brantford, and I got them a little nervous, though I mentioned that there are a lot of coyotes. Brantford is, is uh, it's a, particularly my mother's neighborhood, coyotes running wild everywhere. In fact, my nephew, who just took up hunting recently, shot and killed a coyote, where they have, I believe, uh, they have a bounty on them. And by all accounts, this creature was like 170 pounds. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I haven't seen the photograph. Someone took a picture. I haven't seen it. But to me, that's not a coyote. That's a wolf. You got wolves running wild around, you know, Brant County. It's like biblical, you know. Speaking of the Bible, you know, one of my uh, my favorite books of the Bible that's not in the Bible is the book of Enoch. Many people that listen to this show I know are familiar with that book, the book of Enoch. It, it, that's where we, we learn about the fallen angels coming to earth and co-mingling with the daughters of man and creating this, the Nephilim, right? This race of giants and so forth. Uh, and there are the watchers that are mentioned in the book of Enoch and, and, uh, he's raptured up into heaven and has incredible visions and he gets this secret knowledge from the fallen angels and there's a, even in the, included in the book of Enoch is, is a book of astronomy. It's, it's a fascinating fascinating book. Well, my first guest tonight has actually stumbled upon a high Masonic ritual that incorporates the Book of Enoch. And we're going to get into that uh, right away. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, writer, lawyer, the only child of antique dealers. He was born on October 30th, 1971 in Baltimore, Maryland. And he um, spent his entire junior year of college abroad at St. Catharines College in Oxford University, England, studying European history and philosophy. While in Oxford, he was a member of the Orthodox, or Oxford Union, rather. And uh, he has penned his first book some 20 years in the writing. It's called The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Robert W. Sullivan IV, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: I am well, Richard. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You are a 32nd degree Mason, and we're going to discuss what that actually means here in a moment. But there's a lot of confusion. There are, there are different, uh, rights within Freemasonry. We, we have, and I'd like to take a few moments to discuss what, what those different rights are and the differences between them. We have the, the Scottish Rite. We have the York right. We have the Blue
1: Lodge. Can you sort that out for us? Yeah, sure. You're correct, you have, you have these sort of, in, in America, you have these, basically, you have the two versions of the higher degrees, and then you have Blue Lodge. Blue Lodge Freemasonry is your first three degrees of Freemasonry, um, which is what's called the Entered Apprentice Degree, the Fellow Craft Degree, and the Master Mason Degree. You, you cannot enter the York Rite or the Scottish Rite without completing those three degrees. Um, it, you, you cannot enter either the Scottish Rite or the York Rite without first becoming a Master Mason. And again, this is what's called the Blue Lodge. This is what you would call your local sort of Masonic temple. Many people belong to this. They do the third degree. A lot of people stop at that degree. It's completely voluntary. If you want to go into the higher degrees, no one forces you to. If you want to, it's there. But in order to go into either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite, you have to be a Blue Lodge Master Mason. That is absolutely 100% required. If you do not want to go into the high degrees and you want to stop at the Blue Lodge at the third degree, that is certainly your right. That is your prerogative. There's nothing against that. No one, no one thinks less of you or, or, or indifferent to you if you choose to do that. A lot of Masons choose to go into the um, higher degrees. I chose the Scottish right. There's also the York right. The primary the primary difference between the two, um, well, they're both in in the United States. They're both born out of something. The high degrees in in America are both born out of something called the right of perfection, Um, and these are 25 degrees coming out of Paris, France, in the mid 1700s. They come into America by a guy named Etienne Morin, who brings them piecemeal into the United States um, via Haiti. And it's these 25 degrees which ultimately are transformed into the York right of DeWitt, Clinton, and T.S. Webb, what ultimately becomes the um, Supreme Council of the World set up in Charleston, South Carolina, in 1801, which is, of course, the Scottish right, which is, like you said, I'm the 32nd of that. It ends at the 33rd degree. It really ends at the 32nd degree, but the 33rd degree is, is unsolicited. For example... I can't follow a petition to join the 33rd. I have to be asked to join. And in order to be asked to join, it's usually indicative of charity work, social standing, i.e. you're a politician, or a charity worker. Um, alternatively, you, you know, a minor celebrity can get offered the 33rd degree. Um, a politician, someone who does, um, you know, philanthropy in the community. These are usually who get invited into the 33rd degree.
0: So, 33rd degree is honorary. So it's correct.
1: But it's an honorary degree. That's absolutely right. So, from the 25 degrees, how do we get to 32? They piecemeal them up, and they split them up. And some degrees overlap. They cut a couple of them in half. For example, in the original high-degree system, as it comes in, there's a degree called the Mark Master Mason. And this gets basically turned into degrees 1 through 13 in the Scottish Rite, or, or would be degrees 4 through 13, basically, degrees 1 through 3, or, of course, the Blue Lodge. But that one degree gets split up into, um, you know, like eight separate degrees in the York Rite. It's a little different because they don't have as many degrees, but the main primary difference between the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, and the York Rite has something that is really unique to Freemasonry, and it distinguishes itself from both Blue Lodge and the Scottish Rite. And I'll just backtrack for a minute. In Blue Lodge Freemasonry, it's deism. The requirement to join is you have to believe in a supreme being, is the word that's used, or the great architect. So. If you're a Christian, you can join. If you're Jewish, you can join. You know, a Muslim can join. Hindu, Buddhist. Really, it's to exclude an atheist. An atheist is really who's supposed to be kept out. Scottish Rite is the same sort of philosophy. It's more deistic than it is Christian or Jewish, you know, or Islam. It's it's a deistic sort of um, body. In York Rite, the York Rite ceremony ends with a degree called the Knights Templar. Um, or the Knights Templar, you know, the Temple of the, you know, the Knights Templar, I'm I'm skipping here, it's the Knights Templar uh, ceremonial. And in order to join that in the York Rite, that requires a Christian confession. So if you are doing York Rite and you're a Jewish person or a Muslim or a Hindu, And you come to Knights Templar, you're probably not going to be able to join it because it requires that you have to pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ. So in that aspect, Knights Templary separates itself from the other um, systems of Freemasonry. It, It depends on where you are. It's almost a geographical thing. Some Masons will go through the York Rite and just, you know, if, if they're Jewish or they're Muslim or they're deistic, they will stop at night, at the Knight Templar degree. They won't enter it. To me, that's sort of almost like a Masonic sacrilege. I, I sort of believe that if you're going to join a Masonic body, you should complete the, the, the complete rituals. You should, you should take all the degrees. Some people have no problem with just stopping. Um, you know, right before they get to the Knights Templar, if they're not Christian, um, but in Scottish right, you of course can go right through the 32nd. No one makes you. There's no p- pledge to be, you know, a Hebrew or a right, Christian. Right. You know, you know, you just go go right on through.
0: Robert Sullivan is here. The book is The Royal Arch of Enoch: The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Robert is a 32nd degree a Mason. You're disabusing me of, of, of a lot of, I guess maybe misconceptions that I've had. I mean, I'm speaking to you as someone who sat down in a a secret location with Ed Decker, uh, of course, the author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry, who who, uh, laid out his argument that, uh, that, that Freemasonry is... Is, uh, demonic, satanic, and we've all heard those, those, but to hear you say that you, that you have to swear an allegiance to Jesus Christ, uh, you know, and the Knights Templar, of course, we're familiar with, with the Temp the Knights Templar guarding the, the roads to the Holy Land, uh, for, for Christians in Europe. Uh, so let me, let me talk here just for a couple of minutes before we, we take a time out, and that is the origin of Freemasonry. You mentioned 1700s, uh, the 1700s coming out of Paris or, or France. Uh, where does Freemasonry begin? Is it the ancient stone cutters from uh, from Egypt to, uh, and those that later went on to build uh, the you know the, the, the first temple? Uh, uh, does it begin in the 14th century? Uh, does it begin in the 18th century? When?
1: Okay, well, the the answer to that question is really depends who you ask. Um, When we talk about the thing in the mid-1700s coming out of France, that's really with the higher degrees. Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and what we were just talking about, is really, I mean, as it exists today, um, comes together in 1717 on um, June 24th, um, which, you know, is when the Grand Lodge of England is created. Um, That's when, you know, that's really when most people delineate the starting point for modern-day Freemasonry. Now, when you get into the esoteric and mystical side of it, you know, I mean, this is where you get into sort of the muddy conspiratorial waters. You know, where is its true origins? And it depends on, really, who you want to talk to. I mean, some suggest it comes out of these medieval Germanic guilds, um, building the medieval Gothic cathedrals, Um, During the Middle Ages, some suggest that these stone builders got their knowledge in turn from the Knights Templar who who returned to Europe with these Kabbalistic mathematical secrets that they discovered in the Holy Land. That's really the origins of it. Um, There are people who, you know, and and, and again, you know, these Germanic European stone cutters, these, these cathedral builders are supposed to possess, you know, biblical secrets of stone masonry that goes all the way back to the construction of the Tower of Babel um you know the, the actual really quote unquote you know and then you get into sort of also mystical concepts you know it's freemasonry incorporating you know the egyptian mysteries um you know and you know you know concepts of the dying and resurrected son. um you also get into elements of what's called rosicrucianism which is sort of a proto masonic secret society dealing with new age enlightenment um and you know secrets um, it begins as a modern order as it is today in 1717, but I would definitely suggest that that modern Freemasonry definitely incorporates all elements of what I just said. Um, there are elements of Rosicrucianism in it. There are elements of the Egyptian Mysteries in it that can clearly be seen in the third degree of the Blue Lodge. Um, when you get into actual operative Masonry, which is stonemasonry, and again. You know, this is, has to do with what you know, what's called the Hermetic maxim of as as above, so below, where you get into the concepts of the alignments of buildings to certain constellations, planets. Um, you know, this is now becoming more and more widely accepted with places like the District of Columbia. I'm here in Baltimore, Maryland, and you'll see it in downtown here, um, if you've got the eye for it, and um, the all-seeing eye for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a symbolic language almost.
0: Robert, um, let me and, uh, let me just jump in here. We'll, go ahead, sure, uh, we'll, sure. we'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll uh, we'll delve further into the uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch with Robert Sullivan. We'll find out, of course, a million-dollar question. Many people listening want to know, you know, did the Bavarian Illuminists uh, infiltrate uh, the, the Freemasons? Do they still exist? What do the Jesuits have to do with the Freemasons? All that and more with Robert Sullivan right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Robert Sullivan, the fourth, no less. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the Impact of Masonic Ritual Philosophy and Symbolism. Let's go back to uh, the, uh, the, the 1700s uh, in Europe, and uh, we've often heard it said that the uh, that a, a Bavarian, uh, a member of the Bavarian Illuminati, Adam, uh, Adam Weishaupt, uh, infiltrated Freemasonry. What is the significance of that? I guess we should talk just for a few moments about who the Illuminists were and, and why it's significant that Adam, Adam Weishaupt apparently did what he did.
1: The the Illuminati comes on the scene in 1776. Um, Their birth date is May the 1st, um, which is an interesting date to select. That's, of course, Beltane, which is sort of um, the springtime version of Halloween. Um, The Illuminati is this sort of really extreme form of militant, deistic Freemasonry. Um, I suggest in the book, and I kind of go against what a lot of people say about the Illuminati, Um, But in the book, I suggest that the Illuminati was the Jesuits under another name. Um, And this goes back to the actual creation of the Rites of Perfection um, in Paris, France, which I suggest in the book. Well, I don't suggest it. I state it. was really a counter-reformation agenda of the Jesuits to lure Protestants back to the Church in Rome. And it was also a vehicle to restore the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England. Um, All evidence. Let's just
0: talk about that for a second. How how was uh, this designed? How did the Jesuits uh, intend to lure Protestants back into the Catholic Church?
1: Sure. Um, At the Council of Trent, after the Reformation of Martin Luther occurs. Um, the Jesuits lead this um, Council of Trent, which is what begins what's called the Counter-Reformation, where the Jesuits basically become Europe's version of the CIA, where they use any means necessary, subterfuge, um, you know, espionage.
0: Sure, they, um, so, tried to, they tried to assassinate Elizabeth I, did they, they not? They tried to
1: assassinate Elizabeth I. They um, have taken over the Spanish monarchy, for lack of a better word. And in 1717, when well, what comes on the scene, you have this Protestant deistic... Um, you know, you know, secret society club called the Freemasons, which is very popular. Well, how can we combat this? Well, let's create these higher degrees of Freemasonry. We know that the Blue Lodge only consists of three degrees. Let's create these alternative, new degrees of Freemasonry, which sort of offset these other degrees. Um, and this, you know, you know, when, when you get into it, the guy, this, this is where you're getting into really murky waters. When you, have, when you have the creation of the Blue Lodge in 1717, a Presbyterian English minister writes this thing called the Constitutions of the Freemasons, where he just talks about Blue Lodge, Freemasonry, and he dates it all the way back to, you know, biblical times. In the mid-1730s, you have a, um, a French Roman Catholic Englishman living in Paris who is actually the tutor of Charles Edward Stort, um, who is better known in history as Bonnie Prince Charlie. Uh, his name is Andrew Michael the Chevalier Ramsay and he issues this famous oration in 1732 where he says, no, you guys have got it all wrong. He said Freemasonry isn't Protestant. He said Freemasonry is an invention of the Knights Templar, who are these Roman Catholic warrior knights. Um, and it seems that based on this oration, the the Jesuits um, pick up on this theme, and at this Jesuit college, it's called the College of Claremont. I mean, it's right there in the heart of Paris, um, seem to be creating these high-degree Um, rites and rituals, which they want to sort of take over in England. It never does. Um, And it seems to be the sort of um, device to lure English to reaccept the sort of pretenders back to the throne of England, who, of course, were Catholic, at least James II was. Um, When when high-degree Freemasonry and the right of perfection, it becomes sort of popular in Ireland and um, places like Wales, but it never catches on in London because, you know, the English are very wary of the French. And certainly after, you know, the Henrican settlement, they don't like the Jesuits anyway. Um, but it's 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 definitely, you know, and if you've ever gone through, you know, it's these 25 rights um, that ultimately become the, you know, Scottish right and New York right. And again, you you know, you're talking about. Themes that deal with Roman Catholicism, themes of papal monarchy, royalty. I mean, it's the royal arch degree. I mean, it's the royal secret degree.
0: Right, but and me- a number of a number of uh, monarchs, I believe Queen Victoria had a uh, uh, what was her? Um, she had sort of a, a Masonic uh, type uh, title as well, didn't she?
1: Well, a lot of a lot of monarchs in the a lot of monarchs in Europe always called themselves um, the protector or the protectress of the craft. Um, I believe Queen Victoria called herself the protector of the craft. Um, Napoleon the I called him, himself the protector of the you know, craft. It's, debatable, it's still debatable whether Napoleon I was a mason. That's a sort of 50-50 split on that. Um, people go either way with it. A lot of the generals were. But um, when you get into what, what I was setting up was, when you get into the Illuminati, um, the, the, the society of Jesus is, is suppressed um, in the early 1700s. Um, because by that point in time, they were sort of perceived as these political meddlers, these political intriguists. Um You have a lot of um, Jesuit writers talking about the Egyptian mysteries. The Christianity was just the Egyptian mysteries under another name. Sure, they were
0: kind of a they kind of a, a loose canon. I mean, the the, the 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 papacy tried to distance themselves, and some, perhaps it's it's been argued, certain popes that tried to shut down the Society of Jesus paid with it with their lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Jesuits by that point in time have become their own, you know, sort of secret society. That's really the best way to describe it. Um, Pope Clement XIV suppresses them in the early 1700s. And it's right after that that you have the emergence of the Illuminati, which seems to be the sort of proto-Jesuit Masonic order. Um, And, you know, if you look at the aims of the Illuminati, I mean, it's very anti-Rome, but, you know, it's it's almost like the Jesuits are just trying to get back at the papacy um, for shutting them down. And it seems to have worked. Because um, you know the Illuminati just seems to be this sort of vehicle that carries and transports the Jesuits underground through the French Revolution, through the wars of Napoleon, um, and then you know after the defeat of the Napoleon, you know the defeat of Napoleon, the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars, boom, you have the restoration of the papal states. Um, the restoration of the Jesuits and the restoration of the inquisition
0: it 's all rather so, ironic uh, Robert, that uh, particularly and we 'll probably get into this time permitting that sure. when Freemasonry is transplanted to the United States and of course embraced uh, by by uh, George Washington and, and many of the founders it 's ironic you know here the the, the the raison d'etre of the United States was to uh, to uh, I- you know institute this egalitarian uh, uh, Republic, um, and and yet the organization, uh, the fraternity that they so uh, firmly embraced, was very monarchical.
1: It is, but it's 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 a contradiction between Blue Lodge and the High Degrees. A lot of the found the Blue the, the High Degrees, the, the the guys who are the founding fathers. These are your Franklin, your Washington, your Lafayette, guys like that. Um, these, you know, well not Lafayette's one of the Washington, or Henry Knox is probably a better example, a lot of, you know, in Hamilton. Um, these guys are trying, you know, these guys are your Blue Lodge masons, which is, you know, Blue Lodge is very egalitarian. you know, religious freedom, um, freedom of choice. You know, we're not going to dictate to a person how to live their lives. You know, whatever your own religious belief is yours, we're not going to tell you otherwise. It's not really until... Um, if, you know, until the late 1700s, early 1800s, that you really had the advent of the high degrees in America.
0: All right. Robert Sullivan is with us, and the book is The Royal Arch of Enoch The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. And, uh, you know, the premise of the book is that you have, uh, uncovered this, uh, this high ritual, uh, that is heavily influenced. Uh, by the the Book of Enoch, which of course is uh, one of the apocryphal uh, books, I guess of the bible it 's not included in the Bible though it 's often referenced uh, by biblical scholars of course we 're familiar with uh, you know the tales of the the Nephilim and so forth and fallen angels and and uh, Enoch, who uh, apparently was raptured well let 's take a few moments before we get into uh, what this ritual, the royal arch of enoch uh, was we We need to, to set the table here and talk about. The Book of Enoch. Just just walk us through that. Give us a thumbnail a portrait of the Book of Enoch,
1: if you could. Sure. Um, what has to be understood is the Book of Enoch is off the history pages from around the 2nd second, um, second century Common Era until basically about 1821, when it's finally translated into English um, at Oxford University. Basically, from that entire time frame, the Book of Enoch is off the history pages. In a nutshell... And they try to go through this as quickly as possible. The book of Enoch, Enoch is one of two people in the Bible to never die a physical death. The prophet Elijah is the other one. The book of Enoch, or one Enoch, is it's, sometimes commonly called also. There's also a two-Enoch and a three-Enoch, but we won't have time for those. Um, But one Enoch details, in in the Bible it said that Enoch is taken up into heaven by God. And what one Enoch documents is, what does Enoch entering heaven as a human being in corporeal form see? And he sees some sort of strange stuff that kind of goes against what you would call sort of orthodoxy. Um, He gets up there and he's told, um, or it's highly suggested to him, at least, that the tree of life that, added, that Eve bit from is Hebrew Kabbalah. Um, that the apple is one of the Sephiroth. Um, he is explained that the the tree of life in Hebrew Kabbalah is the emanation of the name of God. Um, he meets the archangels, people like Michael and Gabriel, and he also interacts, sort of, almost as a lawyer-type character, I don't really like to use that term, but it's just for the sake of our, our discussion, almost like an intermediary is probably a better word, for this group of fallen angels known as the Nephilim, um, and the, these angels have incurred the wrath of God because they have come down to earth and have had sexual relations with the earth women, um, and um, or and they have created the race. The, the, the earth women have gotten pregnant and created this race of giants called the nephilim. That's right. yeah. Right. That's right. The um, the angels are often called the fallen angels are called the watchers. Um, and sometimes the archangels are actually um, referred to as the watchers because they watch the watchers. But that's sort of, um, you know, that's we're parsing out words there. But he interacts with this group of fallen angels, and it's through this group that he learns the sort of you know occult. You know, esoteric doctrines, um, mathematics. You know, you know. We're saying this now because it's common knowledge, but back in the day, these were sort of you know, you know, cabalistic secrets, um, knowledge about astrology, astronomy, uh, the movements of the moon, the movements of the sun, mathematics, um, secrets about writing, secrets about language, and what what the Book of Enoch basically you know documents is this experience. Um, And what Masonic lore teaches, and this is coming out of these things called the ancient manuscripts or the Gothic manuscripts, is it's sort of when Enoch comes back down to Earth, he catches wind that the flood of Noah is coming, and it's going to eradicate mankind, and it's going to eradicate this knowledge that Enoch has brought down from these fallen angels.
0: No, and of course Noah, I believe, is. Uh, I'm trying to remember my genealogy here. It's either here. his
1: grandson or his great grandson. Right. Yeah, it's yes. It's, it's one of those two. Right. It's either his great grandson or his grandson. It's escaping me. But um, e- Enoch, Enoch, basically, in an effort to preserve this knowledge that he's learned from these fallen angels, builds this thing called the Vault of Enoch. Um, and what he does is he takes the mathematical knowledge that he's learned from these angels or these fallen angels, and inscribes it on one pillar. Then he takes the seven liberal arts, inscribes that on the other pillar. Then he takes the secret name of God and puts that on this golden triangle in between them and seals it in this um, underground vault under nine archways to survive the flood of Noah. What the Masonic ritual implies, this higher degree, is it has to do with the recovery of this vault of Enoch, And this is being developed in the 1700s in France, which is incorporating clearly elements of the Book of Enoch, which shouldn't be happening because the Book of Enoch is off the history pages in Europe, like I said, to around 1821. Um, Copies of the book are discovered by um, a Freemason named James Bruce while traveling in Ethiopia. And in the early 1770s, he comes back to Europe with them but they're just deposited in the basement of the Bodleian Library at Oxford, where they're not even translated into uh, English until 1821. And what my book documents is this historical anomaly that this Masonic rite, or this Masonic ritual called the Royal Arch of Enoch, I mean it's actually named after him, um, is incorporating elements clearly from the Book of Enoch which should not be happening Um, So what I suggest in the book is clearly there was either either a copy of this thing already floating around Europe, um, which someone saw, um, and this character who most likely saw this is this person I mentioned earlier named the Chevalier Ramsey, or alternatively someone saw a very detailed outline of the Book of Enoch, um, which is possible also. So, you know, where did Raleigh get this knowledge from? So there could be this sort of lost tradition um, or you know perhaps a, you know the secret book of Enoch or a secret library somewhere out there. That's sort of what I kind of conclude at.
0: Fascinating. All right, we'll take a time out. Come back, Robert Sullivan the fourth and the Royal Arch of Enoch: the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Six six seven forty four seven forty. Robert Sullivan is with us. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. Uh, so the, the idea here of this ritual is sort of reclaiming this lost knowledge that, uh, Enoch supposedly, uh, squirreled away prior to the flood. This was knowledge, uh, that he gained from, uh, the fallen angels. Uh, so this would suggest then, uh, that reclaiming this knowledge would 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 go against God's will, would it not? And and then and then we get into this whole discussion about again whether the pursuits of Freemasonry are in fact antithetical to Christianity.
1: Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because what what you what you have just suggested is really what what is the crux of anti Masonry in in America um, is this concept. Of you know that the Masons have sort of thwarted the will of God by preserving this you know sort of lost you know you know almost you know you know wisdom coming from these fallen angels, where where you have you know and I guess it's almost sort of an individual subjective view on this, where where there is a difference in in this and you know you know where where there's a split in this you know where you get into sort of strict orthodoxy is in in the Bible. In the Old Testament, I mean, I, you know, and I don't deny this, um, the, the, the knowledge that, that Enoch learned is definitely considered, you know, unholy and evil. That being said, in the book of Enoch, it's the opposite. In the book of Enoch, despite the fact that the knowledge is coming from the fallen angels, God approves it. Um, you, know, you know, God has no problem with... Enoch learning this material, I mean, and and the knowledge that Enoch, you know, it's a split. I mean, they completely contradict each other. I mean, there's no question about it. In the Bible, the knowledge is perceived as unholy and evil, whereas in the book of Enoch, the knowledge that Enoch squirrels away is divine and godly. Um... You know, it, it depends on your flavor, if you will. If you want to look at it one way, then you could say, yeah, well, then the Masons are sort of this, you know, secret cabal, you know, protecting the squirreled away knowledge, and it's evil. But you can look at it the other way and say, well, there, you know, if you take the Book of Enoch, if you want it, well, yeah, well, the knowledge was godly, and God approved it and had no problem with it. So, but you you are correct, um, you know, and, and where you're getting into more concepts within this country, you know, of the anti-Masonry flavor of it is... Is the restoration of this knowledge, um, and this goes to directly to the heart of the Royal Arch degree, and this is what I mentioned earlier in the show. Is is in order to restore this knowledge um, inscribed on these two pillars. It's the recovery of what is the name of God, which is squirrel. or well, it's not squirrel, which is placed in between them. It's what's called the tetragrammaton in masonry. It's the, it's another way of saying the name of God, and within the Royal Arch ritual. Um, th- that name is, is controversial because, you know, you know and again, this gets to the crux of anti-Masonry. Is, you know, it's basically a combination. I'm, I'm not allowed to say it, but I'll, I'll just get into the, the description of it. It's a combination of um, either Yahweh or Jehovah, and the other two syllables are these um, pagan sun gods. Um, it's, not a, it's, it's not a creature or an entity that any Mason truly worships. It's just a, a substitute, you know, they had to come up with a name, so that's what they went with. Um, I know that's probably not an alert answer, an answer people, you know, may not want to hear, but really the truth of it. But, it, it, it you know, you know the, 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 the stem of it is, well, since you're not using Jesus Christ, this is, you know, some sort of, you know, pagan, you know, unholy, you know, secret society. No, they're just combining three names, and, you know, again, if a person decides that's not right, well, that's up to that person, I can't dictate to them what what they think or feel. But it it definitely is part of, um, you know, anti-masonry. But, you know, again, just going back to the question – you know, the, the the information stored on the knowledge, or on the pillars, excuse me, is, you know, considered divine in the Book of Enoch, but in the Bible it's considered unholy.
0: Right. I mean, I, as an Orthodox Christian, I, I I certainly can't see anything ungodly about, you know, the Pythagorean theory, or, or algebra, or the liberal arts. I mean, right, <laughs> God right. God knows there are some, you know, some great seminaries around uh, North America that offer a good liberal arts degree.
1: That Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the... Um the the, 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 um, in, in the In the book, in, in, in the sonic lore, in, in the royal arch ritual, they discovered the Vault of Enoch, and it's the recovery of the tetragrammaton. And what, why this is so important within masonry, and, and, and what my book presents is it's really the symbolism and the philosophy coming out of this degree that really is, is what's defining America more such than the Blue Lodges, because it's the recovery of this lost name of God this this tetragrammaton well your listeners may be saying well what's so important about that well what's what's really important about it is this is the entire point of Blue Lodge Freemasonry
0: let me just which, let's leave that as a cliffhanger we'll take a time out and we'll come back okay, and sure, we'll find sure, out sure, no why this is so important and uh, and how uh, it, it helped shape uh, America back with more of my conversation with Robert W Sullivan IV the Royal Arch of Enoch right here on the conspiracy show. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Robert Sullivan stays with us as we discuss uh, this high ritual uh, influenced by the Book of Enoch, the Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. And before we proceed, Robert, uh, just let folks know how they can get a hold of the book.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um My webpage is www.robertwsullivan, and that's IV, because my name's the fourth, that's the letter I and the letter V, .com. It's all lowercase, it's all connected. That's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. There are links from that page um, in the upper right to buy the book. It's available from my publisher. It's on Kindle. It's on Nook. You can buy it in um, Apple's iBookstore. There are links to that all on my webpage. Um, You can buy it from my publisher. Alternatively, it's on Amazon.com. It's on Kindle. It's on Barnes & Noble's Nook. You can purchase the oversized paperback. It's a little more expensive, but if a person wants that too, um, that's available. So, yeah, um, if you go to robertwsullivaniv.com, um, and there's a link there on the upper right corner. It says buy the book. Click on that, and there are links that will take you anywhere you want to go. And if you go to the page, there's also my Twitter feed, Facebook like pages. A person could check out. And I just recently launched a YouTube channel. Um, you can go to the media section for that and um, watch some videos of me talking about the book. Um, that's, that's all there, and it's totally free. Anyone can go there anytime.
0: All right, so let's uh, spend some time discussing uh, the significance of this. Okay, so we have this ritual uh, that is based on or influenced by the Book of Enoch, and uh, it, it, the premise here is the recovery of this sort of lost arcane knowledge that was supposedly given to Enoch by uh, the fallen angels, uh, so, w- what's the significance of that?
1: Sure. Well, the, the significance is twofold. Um, in in the in the masonic in masonic lore, I'm just going to go over this quickly because I'm going to go back to the other section, which is probably a little bit more important. In, in in the high degree, it's the recovery of this lost name, which we've talked about. Is you know, if you you know, in the masonic legend, when you correctly pronounce it, you can restore the knowledge on these on these two pillars. In the masonic legend. This is even before the Masons discovered the vault. Um, In the ritual, the vault had already been penetrated by these two characters. Um, One is named Hermes Trismegistus, who is sort of this um, Greco-Roman-Egyptian god of wisdom who correctly um, pronounces the name and restores the seven liberal arts. The other character is this Greek mathematician named Pythagoras, who has a Eureka moment in the vault, which Eureka I found that the it being the lost name, pronounces it correctly and restores mathematics to the world. Um, the reason it's important, and this goes back to what we were, we we left off on before the before the break, is the the reason why this degree is so important, and the philosophies associated with it are so important, and the symbolism is so important, and the ritual is so important, and which is what my 700 book, page book is really all about, is because it's the recovery of this lost name of God, which is called the Tetragrammaton. The, the the search and, and, and recovery of this thing is the entire purpose really of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, where if we go back in time to the beginning of the show where we were talking about the Blue Lodge and we said there are these first three degrees which in order to enter the higher degrees every Mason or every person must complete. You have the three degrees of entered apprentice, fellow craft, master mason. Um, and, you know, just because of time constraints, I'm just going to bottle this. You know, the first degree is basically an inter- introductory degree. The second degree is the, the candidate is told to basically, you know, this reflects the royal arch to seven, study the seven liberal arts to make himself a better person, yada, yada, yada. The third degree is where the candidate um, reenacts this ritual, this, this symbolic murder of a guy named Hiram Abith. Um, who is the architect of the first temple, the first temple of Solomon. And what, what Hiram Bith possesses is this secret name. It's called, the, in, in this degree, it's what's called the lost word of a master mason. And Hiram Bith has this. And, and it's, 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 he's using this name. It's through this name that he's able to construct, you know, this temple, the, the, the temple of Solomon. Well, in a nutshell... Like I said, you know, I know we're up against time here, so I'm going to do my best to bottle this. But in a nutshell, these three fellow craft want this name for themselves, and, and the temple's nearing completion. And Hiram Abif tells them, listen, I'll give you this secret name. I'll give you this lost name of God, you know, so you can have this knowledge for yourselves, but I'm not going to do it until the temple's complete. Once the temple's complete, I'll pass it on. Well, the three, the three fellow craft, that's not good enough for them. They conspire, and they, they, they ritualistically. Murder Hiram Biff and he's dead. When when Hiram Biff is killed, the the word of God, this lost name, is lost. I mean, that's what it's called. It's called the lost word of a master mason. It's never found again. When it dies, when 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 Hiram Abiph dies, the word dies with him in the Blue Lodge. Um, so no one has it. Um, you know, in the Blue Lodge, it's never recovered. When, when, in a nutshell, when the candidate, as Hiram Abiff is finally raised to the degree of master mason, you know, and this is when, when Hiram Abiff is resurrected, if you were, um, they they whisper in his ear a substitute word. And I can't say what it is, but I'm sure if, if one of your listeners or you want to go on Google and just type in substitute word of a master mason, I, I know it'll come up. But they whisper the substitute word, and it's not the real word. It's what's called a substitute word of a master mason. And forever within Blue Lodge Freemasonry, you know the word is lost. Well, if you go ahead to the high degrees and you go to this Royal Arch degree, the word, the Hiram of Biff word that he had, is found. I mean, and that the, you know the, this is the whole crux of it. So it's like you know, you know, what is lost is now found, and it's really sort of this, you know, the symbology of the recovery of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, you know, and the the, the restoration of this lost yet legitimate wisdom that I, my book presents is really the symbolic philosophy that is really defining freemasonry and it's really defining it in the united states both you know on a symbolic philosophical political you know architectural you know and even almost spiritual level and that's what the whole the whole crux of my book is about
0: well you said it's symbolic but do you, do you believe it might be more than symbolic is there real power attached to uh this you know lost name for God
1: well I don't know I mean I, I would say I would say it's definitely more symbolic than it is actual literal power um some have suggested and you know I, I don't really go into it in you know I, I hint at it in my book I don't really go into it but but you what 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 I pro- propose is I mean it's really at the conclusion of my book, you know, is is you know when we're getting into this, you got to know what the ritual is. And, and I'm just gonna, cause it, you know, time again, I'm just gonna go through it. Is what what ha- what's happening is when the temple builders, when the Jewish temple builders are returning to the Holy Land from their exile in Babylon, they're building the second temple, which is called the Second Temple of Zerubbabel. And it's during this construction that they find this hidden vault with the pillars and the name of God and And you know you know you know you know well we've talked about this whole show, and you know it's it's the recovery of this name and this knowledge. Well, I kind of suggest at the end of my book, is this you know, is this just a ritual, or is this some sort of real history that this thing is trying to relate? For example, you know, and I kind of hint at it, you know is you know, was at some point in time this lost underground vault, you know really found? You know, and, you know, could this potentially be the lost treasure of the Knights Templar? You know, you know, when they went to the Holy Land, you know, is this what maybe they really found was this sort of underground treasure vault, you know, with this lost knowledge? Is this what they were, you know, were were so desperate to protect? Um, You know, and, you know, this ties into concepts. And I suggested in my book, I suggested, I, I, I can argue it either way, you know, because, like, you, you, know, you know, I mean, and you, your listeners are going to know this. You know, when you get into concepts of, like, Roslyn Chapel, which has, you know, lots of Freemasonic, Knight Templar, you know, lore surrounding it, you have loads of references to the Temple of Zero Babel in it. You get into concepts of where the Knights Templars. You know, here in America first, before Columbus, you know, you get into concepts of the Kensington Rune Stone, you know, and Oak Island. You know, was, is Oak Island this hidden vault of Enoch? Is this maybe what the Knights Templars really concealed down there? Was, was this, you know, is it real history, or is it just this symbolic allegory? I mean, it's a fascinating question. Um, I wish I could give you a definitive answer on it one way or the other. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth researching and looking at.
0: Well, maybe there's your next assignment, uh, Robert, yeah. the subject of your next book. The Arch of Enoch, real or merely symbolic?
1: Yeah, um, it, it's definitely it's definitely um, something. You know, you know, people are always saying, you know, this stuff um, coming out. You know, the Knights Templar. Well, they must have discovered something over there. I definitely suggest in the book. I mean, I can't prove it, but um, you know, I suggest that maybe this is really what they discovered was this hidden underground vault with with these pillars with the you know secret name, and maybe this is what they were concealing. Um, You know, you know, you know, we're so desperate to hide. You know, you look at it, you look at it, you just stand back from it. I mean, when the Knights Templar returned to Europe, I mean, all of a sudden, you have these Gothic, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, stone cathedrals going up, which are just. Perfect, you know, Pythagorean mathematical precision, you know, with flying buttresses. I mean, you know, where are these guys getting this from? You know, all but overnight. I mean, where is this information coming from? I mean, you know, you know, before that, I mean, you know, just stacking one stone on top of the other. The Knights Templar is returning. All of a sudden you got Chartres, you know, and these huge, you know, you know, gothic cathedrals just popping up, you know, which are just mathematical, you know, you know, the golden, you know, ratios in there. You know, you got astral alignments. Um, You know, you got alignments to the equinoxes and the solstices. You know, where is this coming from? Um, You know, you get into Roslyn, you know, and again, you've got numerous references in there to the Zorobabel temple, you know, and, and, and lots of Masonic symbolism and, you know, Egyptian symbolism and the mysteries. Um, you know, is this, the, is this what the Templars really discovered? You know, maybe they came back also with a copy of the Book of Enoch. Um, that's certainly not out of the question. Maybe this is the copy that was circulating around Europe. There you go. Um, Listen, you know.
0: Robert, this is uh, absolutely fascinating, and I'm, and I'm glad that you spent the hour with us, and uh, I thank you for that. Again, the Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual philosophy and symbolism, Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was great to be on, and uh, I'd love to come back.
0: Anytime. My pleasure. There you go. I mean, the uh, the debate about uh, the Freemasons, satanic cult or misunderstood fraternity, it's not going away. Uh, but Robert gave me uh, you know a whole new uh, sort of fresh approach and, and way of looking at uh, at Freemasonry. All right. Uh, just a quick reminder coming up, or not a reminder? This is uh, the first you're hearing about it. A world exclusive on the conspiracy show next week. Of course, you're, you're familiar with uh, the the citizens' hearing on disclosure, which occurred uh, oh about a month ago, end of April in Washington D.C., uh, which was of course uh, uh, sort of uh, brought to me by brought to being by uh, uh, um, Stephen Bassett, and there was thirty uh, some. Uh, top uh, witnesses, military people, intelligence people, uh, testifying before six former U.S. congressmen about uh, the UFOs, uh, the UFO question and the E.T. presence. The uh, well, Stephen Bassett will be on the program next week, uh, along with our good friend Victor Vigiani, who was uh, in attendance at the hearings. But also, and here's the exclusive part, a sort of heretofore silent partner, mystery man, is coming forward on this program next week to talk about his involvement in the citizens' hearing and how he sort of put his money where his mouth is. So that's coming up next week. Victor Vigiani, uh, Stephen Bassett, and Mr. X, we'll call him. (laughs) Hope you'll be tuning in for that one. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and you can check everything out. You need to know about The Conspiracy Show at richardserrett.com.